Hello, everybody. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Mark Crutcher, an American pro-life activist who founded the organization Life Dynamics based out of Texas. He's also the creator of the pro-life doc- documentary Mafa 21, you may have heard of. He's written several books, including Lime 5, a pro-life strategy book, an expose of the abortion industry. He's actually credited with pioneering the strategy of recruiting what he calls calls, quote, spies for life to find information about abortionists to help put them out of business. He actually inspired David Daleiden, who was responsible for the baby body parts investigation of Planned Parenthood back in 2015. As of December 2015, Crutcher has said that he is planning to, quote, unleash a whole army of David Daleidens to spy on abortion providers in every part of the country. I've been wanting to talk to Crutcher about his work on my podcast for quite some time, and I'm happy to present that long-awaited conversation for you today. Yeah, I'll start off with the question. I start off when I'm talking to most pro-life leaders and strategists, which is how did you end up on a trajectory into the pro-life movement to begin with? Everybody's got a unique story and it's a really it's a really weird thing to end up spending your life dedicated to. So I wanted to know how you ended up in this movement to begin with. Well, you can um, repeat that. It's a weird thing, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that the... Um, that you don't choose the pro-life movement, it chooses you. Mm-hmm. And in my case, that was certainly true. Um, I came from the auto industry and I had always been pro-life, but um, you know, I was what you'd call a weekend warrior, just did what I could when I could. And um, I was doing a lot of debates for an organization called Texans United for Life, which at the time was far and away the biggest pro-life group in Texas. And um, so I was doing debates for them. They get calls for a debate. And this is back when there were a lot of debates on abortion. There's not, you don't see that much anymore. But um, the, um, the president of it, Bill Price, called me and, and asked me if I'd be willing to do, those, do these debates for them whenever they had a, an opportunity. And so I agreed. I enjoyed doing them. I, I loved beating up on the pro aborts. It was great sport as far as I was concerned. Uh, and I was very good at it. But um, so I started doing debates for them. And it, we reached a point where uh, I guess I overplayed my hand. I was beating up on these, on these poor hapless pro aborts to the point that the Texas Family Planning Association sent a, uh, at that time, a fax around the state uh, telling all their affiliates not to debate with me anymore. And even at that time, I had two debates scheduled which they backed out of and, and, the, and the sponsoring organizations then canceled, canceled, of course. And so I told Bill that um, since I was doing training for the auto industry and I was used to doing seminars, I would develop a seminar to train speakers for him and they couldn't dodge everybody. That was the, the thinking behind that. So we decided to do that and, and we estimated we might have Oh, 10, 15 people go, something like that. And so we rented a room in Dallas and um, started uh, putting out the word that I was doing the, going to do this seminar. We got up to about 120 people signed up for that seminar. And we were astonished by that. And what we did is we tapped into a, um, a vein that we didn't know was there. And that was people were crying for um, information and for training 
to def- defend their position, even if they weren't going to be professional debaters, even if they were just talking to their friends or relatives or neighbors or coworkers. Right. Um, so we were going to do that. We had to get a bigger room, of course. So I decided we'd do that one seminar and I just produced enough materials for that one event. Cause that's all we were planning on doing. And so I, um, we're going to do that one seminar and that, and we'd get maybe four or five good speakers out of that. And uh, he could use them rather than me. Um, at the end of that seminar, when it was over, it's an all day event. It was an eight hour event. At the end of that seminar, um, five other people came forward and asked me, they were from out of town. We had people from Chicago, we had people from New York, California that had heard about this and had come there. Five other groups came up and asked me if I'd do seminars for them. So um, that wasn't in my plan, but like I said, the pro-life movement chooses you. You don't choose it. Right. So I started doing those seminars. Which, which year was this? That was 85 or 80, eight, yeah, 85 or so. Okay. Okay. And um, I started doing the seminars and every time I would do one, I'd get three or four calls from, for other seminars. And pretty soon, um, I was backed up for over a year in commitments that I'd made to do seminars. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, I gave up my, my consulting practice uh, in the auto industry to do this. And it was, to, again, that was going to be a temporary thing. I told my wife, I'll, I'll step aside for a while and then I'll come back in the car business and, and start doing seminars again and training for them. Um, never happened. Um, four, four years later, um, I had done, or actually about five years later, I had done, um, over 140 seminars all over the United States and Canada and, uh, still had a, a year's worth of seminars in front of me, uh, to do. So this had turned into a, a permanent situation. Right. Right. How would you describe the pro-life movement at that time? Obviously, you showed up and your, and your ability to debate and to train filled a huge need. Uh, so, like, from the perspective of 2020, how would you describe the pro-life movement of the mid to late 80s? Well, by the late 80s and early 90s, um, the pro-life movement, in my opinion, was just going through the motions. The, the possibility that we might actually have a chance of winning was pretty remote in most people's minds. They wouldn't go out and say that in public, but I had pro-life leaders that I was doing seminars for in a private moment would tell me, look, you know, we don't have a chance of winning this thing, but God won't let us quit. So we have to continue on, but there's really no option for us to win this deal. And my attitude was, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into a battle if I don't think I have a chance of winning. If right, I ever think, right. if I ever thought we didn't have a chance of winning, I'd have quit right then. I'm not here to make a martyr out of myself and to give up my career that I had built, I had spent years building. Um, and so I started uh, trying to make sure people understood that we did have a chance to win if we would do certain things. That there were holes in the pro-life movement that I saw, things that we we were not doing which any good socio-political movement uh, would do. And um, so I started kind of preaching that message and saying, hey, you know, well, I'll, I'll keep doing these seminars and training people, but we've got to change, take some new st- strategies on. 
And in 1986 or 87, I wrote a book called Firestorm. And it was my view of what the future of the pro-life movement needed to look like. And a lot of it involved guerrilla tactics and things that maybe a lot of pro-lifers wouldn't do, uh, wouldn't feel comfortable doing. Um, but I looked at it as a war and it, it still is a war. And it always has been a war. Uh, people are dying. It's, it's a war in the classic sense of the word. Right. Right. The war is not between contrary to what people think. The war is not between the pro-life side and the pro-abortion side. The war is between the pro-abortion side and the babies because we're not dying. We're all going to go home tonight and sleep in our beds and, you know, drive our cars and whatever else we do race motorcycles like I was doing, whatever it might be, we're still going to do all those things. It's the babies who wind up in the dumpster. So the war is not between us and, and the pro aborts, it's between the pro aborts and the babies. And that's a fundamental distinction that we need to keep in mind. Basically, what we are is mercenaries. We signed up to fight on the side of those who can't fight for themselves. That's what we right. are. Right. Um, so I wrote Firestorm and I didn't have any real way to um, affect the things that I wanted to do. I didn't have the money to do it. I didn't have any, the, any meth, any, any resources. What, but sort I put, of, what sort of tactics did you pitch in, in Firestorm? What sort of strategies and tactics? Well, again, the, the guerrilla type tactics going undercover. Mm -hmm. My idea always was that everything we needed to know to defeat the abortion industry is inside the abortion industry. They know exactly what we need to know to beat them. We're, we just weren't going in and getting it. So I said that we needed to do more of that. We needed to do more things to attack the abortion industry as a business. This is, we always wanted to attack it as a moral argument. And we were going to use moral suasion to get these people over to our side. That's a Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm approach to things. Um, you're not going to win these people for the most part. 99.9% uh, .9 of them are unwinnable just like we are, you know, people say, well, I don't think that's true. And I'll say, okay, are you winnable? In other words, if you heard a really good debate on abortion today in which the pro-abortion pro side won, would you change your mind? Oh no, I'd never change my mind. Well, they're the same way. Right. Right. And so we have to go after them and destroy the, the business end of it. And so I wrote Firestorm with that in mind, going undercover, uh, doing some pretty aggressive things, heightening the stigma of abortion. That's the biggest thing we've got going for us at that time. And it's the biggest thing we got going for us today. That stigma has never gone away. And it's, and as long as we do our job, it never will go away. And it certainly hadn't. I think personally, the stigma on abortion is greater today than it was, let's say in the 1980s, right. because we, right. we know more about it. And we have sonograms and we have ultrasound and we have interuterine cameras and we have fetal surgery. So whereas before the argument that the unborn child is a living human being was mostly philosophical or theoretical or theological. Now it's an observable fact. You can see it. So I think the stigma is actually higher on abortion today than it was then. And that's our biggest asset. And we need to capitalize on that asset. And I think we do a, a much better job now than we did then. But I wrote Firestorm and I just kind of put it out there. I, I didn't have any uh, mailing list to send it to. I just, I printed a thousand copies of it and I just gave them out to people. Um, in 1992, 
I got a call from a guy who we still don't know to this day how he got his copy of Firestorm. And he was not part of the pro-life movement, but he had recently become convicted of the pro-life movement and he was a businessman. And he told me, he said, look, I've been, I've gone around to all the major pro-life groups and said, I've got a lot of money. And he did have a ton of money and he was making a ton more. And he said, I told him, I want to help fund you and do your projects, but I want to see what your plan is. He said, nobody had a plan. They didn't, they didn't have saying, okay, if we do A, B, C, D, E, this is how we're going to lay this out. Right. Right. He said, none of them had that. And he said, when I read Firestorm, that was the first time I'd seen a plan. So what do we have to do now to get you started? And so we started Life Dynamics in 1992 to implement the things that I had written about in Firestorm and then whatever else came along as time went on. And that's how Life Dynamics came to exist in 1992. So what are some of the specific guerrilla tactics? When you talk about stigmatizing abortion, right? I work with the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. The way we stigmatize abortion is we show pictures of dead babies on the street. We show videos of the abortion procedure where you see the baby being pulled apart, right? So I I, I agree completely that stigmatizing abortion, as Greg Cunningham puts it, making abortion more horrifying than the circumstances of a crisis pregnancy is a huge part of what we do. How How did you set out to stigmatize not only abortion, but the abortion industry? What are some of the specific projects you'd launched? One of the first ones we did uh, was a, we did a thing called bottom feeder and I took what were like lawyer jokes and blonde jokes and jokes that made fun of a certain group of people, particularly lawyers and blondes and here in Texas, Texas A&M, people that go to Texas A&M, they're always the butt of jokes. Right, right. I took all those jokes and I transformed them into abortionist jokes and made the butt of the joke abortionist. Then I had a uh, comic book illustrator that I hired come in and illustrate all these jokes. And we put them in a little, into a little comic book called bottom feeder. And that's a takeoff on the, uh, on the joke. What's the difference between a, a lawyer and a catfish? You know, one's a smelly garbage eating bottom feeder. The other one's a lawyer. You know, that that we, we took that joke and applied it to abortionists along with about 50 or 60 more. And we bought a mailing list of one half of all the doctors in the United States and Canada. Um, it was an enormous list. I think I think our initial mailing was about 150,000 of these joke books. And we sent them to um, all the medical, all those kids in medical school, all the people in medical school and all the doctors with less than two years experience because they'd be residents somewhere. And the, the idea was not to convince them from a moral perspective that you don't want to get involved with abortion. We were convincing them from a business perspective. This is not something you want to do. Your parents didn't send you to medical school and you didn't go through the rigors of a medical school education to go out and be known as an abortionist. Nobody does that. Um, And so what our idea was is that if we could not just stigmatize abortion, but stigmatize abortionist, we could put the abortion industry under through attrition. And we started seeing tremendous results from this. 
And let me just give you some, some uh, differences between, let's say, 1992 and we started Life Dynamics and today. Right, right. In 1992, our first mailing that we ever did, and we do a lot of direct mail, was to the abortion clinics. And we had a specific mailing that we did to them. And that mailing list was 2,126. That's how many freestanding abortion clinics there were in the United States at that time. Today, there's only slightly over 500 of those 2,126 left. So we've closed down. And I say we, I'm not saying Life Dynamics is taking all the credit for this. When I say we, I mean the, the pro-life movement has closed down three-fourths of the abortion clinics in this country. Um, and I think the numbers are somewhat similar for Canada. Um, but we've closed down three quarter, over three-fourths of the abortion clinics in this country since 1992. In 1992, uh, most abortion clinics had more abortionists than what they needed. If they needed three on staff, they had five. They had two standbys. If somebody went on vacation or was out for some reason, they had standby abortionists. Today, even though there's only about 500 abortion clinics left in America, the vast majority of them have one or two abortionists, and many of them just have one. And if that guy quits or retires or drops dead or whatever might happen to him, if he's gone, the place closes down. Abortion, that's the number one reason that abortion clinics close down right now is the, the inability to recruit staff. And that's not just abortionists, but it's nurses and anesthesiologists and the other people that the support staff that work in the clinic. Um, so we know this has had a tremendous effect and that's why we know the stigma is still there. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that, or the, or the great irony is, or the great beauty is, what's killing the abortion industry today is choice. They've, they've put everything on the, on the back of choice all these years. They say, oh, it's not about abortion, it's about choice, right? The fact is that the reason abortion clinics close, the number one reason is people are choosing not to go to work in them. And all they can hire is just the dregs and the washouts and the losers of medicine, the moral degenerates. That's all they can hire. And even some of them will openly concede that that's true, that they, they don't get people, they don't get the cream of the crop. Nobody right. graduates right. from a prestigious OBGYN school and says, oh, I wanna go to work at Planned Parenthood. That's my dream job. Planned Parent, going to work at Planned Parenthood or any other abortion mill is what you're relegated to when you can't get a practice going or you lose your practice or you lose your medical malpractice insurance or whatever it might be. This is where you wind up. Um, now, if you want to look at the practical effects of this beyond just the closing of these abortion clinics, I've had people say, well, don't people then just go to another abortion clinic if one of them closes? In 1992, I don't know the numbers for Canada, but I can tell you the numbers for, for the United States. In 1992, um, the abortion rate was about 5,000 a day, 1.7 million a year. And the abortion industry was making money hand over fist. 1.7 million abortions a year, 5,000 a day. Today in the United States, the abortion rate is slightly under 2,000 a day. Now, 2,000 babies being butchered every day is still a national disgrace. It's, it's deplorable <laughs> that we're in this situation as a people. 
But let me point something out to you. When you talk about abortion rate going from 5,000 a day to 2,000 a day, a couple of things happen. First off, at 2,000 abortions a day, the abortion industry isn't near as strong as it was when it was doing 5,000 abortions a day. Right. The right. high abortion rate provides the strength they need uh, to do the next 5,000 abortions. But the main thing is that right now, with a population in this country that's about 20% higher than it was in 1992, we're doing 3,000 abortions fewer per day than we were doing then. So that's 3,000 babies, minimum of 3,000 babies that would have otherwise been killed if the abortion rate had just remained flat. 3,000 more babies would be killed today than What was the immediate reaction when you sent out all these booklets and, and, we're, and, and we're, we're talking about the early 90s. It was quite a volatile time because this is right after some of the clinics started getting bombed, uh, getting bombed after Operation Rescue fell apart. This is right in the middle of, 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 of like heightened tensions in the movement. And then this goes out. What was the reaction you got from med students, from doctors, from the abortion industry when these uh, these joke books started landing on their front doorsteps and in their mailboxes? as a result of this. So the media went berserk. I won't use the term I normally use, but they went berserk over this. Uh, the abortion industry became apoplectic. They were, they were beside themselves because they knew it would work. If they thought for a minute that it wouldn't work, they wouldn't have been as worried about bottom feeder as they were. But they were holding press conferences, believe this or not, they were holding press conferences about bottom feeder 10 years after we did that initial mailing, it was <laughs> unbelievable. Um, the, one of the interesting thing is, uh, was on one of the national news broadcasts, they went out to med schools and interviewed people that were in medical school at that time, half of which had received one of these bottom feeder books. And they said, what was your initial reaction to this? What was your thoughts about it? And, you know, some of them were, oh, I'm pro-life. I thought this was a great idea. Some of them were, I'm pro-life. I thought this was an awful idea. Um, I'm pro-choice. And this is the kind of thing that you have to put up with when you decide to do elective abortions. We couldn't have bought that for a million dollars. This is somebody who's pro-choice saying to other people, you don't want to get involved in this. This is nasty. This, these people are going to come after you. They think they're hurting me by saying those kind of things. Yeah, it's this Yahoo down here in Texas that, you know, you know, probably has an IQ of 15 or, you know, room temperature IQ that's doing these things, but they're effective. And we had a, a bunch of people that were interviewed on these shows, on these national television uh, news shows saying, this is the reason that when I get out of medical school, I'm not going to do abortions. I'm pro-choice, but I'm not going to get dragged into this. Um, we also had a lot of abortionists quit at that time because hmm. One, hmm. one of the things that we started doing also, we started identifying abortionists who worked at clinics who didn't want their colleagues to know that they worked in abortion clinics. And we started sending direct mail to their homes and to the neighbors that live around them and to the businesses that are around their abortion clinic saying, did you know this guy's an abortionist? We found places where, they had uh, prohibitions 
against renting to people that do abortions where there were clinics located because the landowners didn't know they were doing abortions. They have it listed as a women's clinic. That happened right here in Denton. Uh, it was Denton services, health services for women. Half the people in Denton didn't know that was an abortion clinic. What they did once we started doing all this direct mail and we started having abortionists quit and abortion clinics saying, if we don't find a, a new provider, we're going to have to shut down. Right. Uh, right. You know, those sort of things. So these are what I'm talking about, about guerrilla tactics. Right. Right. And, um, you know, you mentioned Operation Rescue. One of the things that, that I always said, and I've said this to Randall Terry and to uh, Keith Tucci, who took over after him, and to Flip Benham, and, and now one of my best friends is, is um, Troy Newman. And I've told them, I said, you know, my opinion always was about Operation Rescue that you guys – rescued a lot of babies, but what you really rescued was the pro-life movement because this movement was moribund when Operation Rescue came along. It was dead in the water. Nothing was happening. And Rescue activated a bunch of people. Now, most of the people that Operation Rescue activated, once Operation, Operation Rescue collapsed, most of those people went back home. They said, right. okay, right. I did my bit. I did my time. I made my effort. God will be happy with me. I'm going back home. Yeah, they're still killing babies, but I'm going to go back home and do nothing, which is what most of them are doing now. That's the majority of people that were in Operation Rescue. However, a bunch of them didn't go back home. They wanted to stay in the battle. And we benefited from that at Life Dynamics because when those guys said, we're not going to quit. We're not going to go back home. I didn't get in this just for the glory or to, or to get brownie points with God. Um, they started looking around for another pro-life organization to support. And we were the beneficiary of that. I would say that probably of the people in America that were rescuers that then uh, had a, were looking for a home when Operation Rescue died, I'm going to bet we got a third of them that right. Became, right. became donors to Life Dynamics or supporters of Life Dynamics. And over the years, they've stuck with us. They've been there with us through good times and bad. And um, so we, we actually benefited from that. Um, and I've made this point with, with all the guys, people that have, that have overseen uh, Operation Rescue over the years. Again, I, I'd say, I think they rescued the pro-life movement more than they rescued babies. So what did this look like practically? So was it just you fundraising a salary and printing these books and mailing them all out? Or did you have a few staff members? You got an office. Did you get a whole bunch of threats after you launched this campaign and started getting all the media coverage? Or what did that look like in practical terms for your life? Almost every project we've ever done, and we've done, I'm sure you know, a bunch of high profile projects. We always get threats. Um, you, but, you know, you have to make a decision up front. Um, if you're going to do something, there, there's no saying, if you're catching flack, that means you're over the target, right? You don't catch flack if you're not over the target. So you're going to catch flack if you're, have, if you're being effective at all. If you're not, they'll leave you alone. It's like Satan. Satan doesn't, doesn't go after churches that are on fire. Satan goes after the, the one. I mean, he doesn't go after the churches that are just out there sitting there doing nothing. He goes after the ones that are on fire. Um, same thing here. But you have to make a decision up front. Am I going to quit? 
if the heat gets turned up too high. And yeah, I've gotten death threats and bomb threats and all kinds of threats, but um, we're not quitting. We're still here. And yeah, we did get up to where we had about 13 employees at one time. Um, we're getting more done today, mainly because of the changes in technology. I mean, just what we're doing right here would have been unthinkable 20 years right. ago. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Oh yeah. This is never going to happen. Well, here we are, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And so with computers and, and social media and all the other technology that's out there, uh, we have four employees now um, and counting me. So three in addition to me, um, we're getting more done because of technology. We've, we've, we've had to move forward. I don't, I mean, I'm not a guy that's all, all that in love with all this technology. Half of it, I, th I don't think makes any sense whatsoever. When I see my daughter and her friend sitting in our living room, watching television with us and texting each other back and forth with them three feet apart, I think this is nuts. This, is, this makes no sense whatsoever. But um, that's the world we live in. And so we've got to make the best of it that we can. And um, so we're using technology to, to move us down the road. Now, you know, the thing that we're most known for is not bottom feeder or some of those other guerrilla tactics. It's the undercover work that we did. Right. Right. That and we continue to look for opportunities to do undercover. As I'm sure you know, um, probably the biggest issue in the pro-life movement over the last 20 years has been the revelation about them chopping up the babies and selling them for parts. Right. That was a life dynamics project. Uh, we started that uh, later on, of course, uh, David Delighton came along. Which, which, which year, when did you launch your first undercover investigation? Like which year? 1999. Okay. Okay. And that was on baby body parts then already? Yes. We started, it was, it was 31 months long. Actually we started in 97 with the project, but, it was 31 months long. And so it, it lasted over into 2000, actually not 99, mm. yeah. which is when we released the information on it. And how, did, and how did you get the, how did you get the information? We were undercover in, in several abortion clinics around the country. Um, and we had undercover operatives working for us. Uh, most people, if you go back and you look at the information online and the stuff that we've put out on it, you'll see that we had, um, one that we, that we identified one primary um, operative that we had inside the clinics. And he actually worked for one of these companies that procures the parts. That was his job. Uh, he chopped up the babies in the, in the abortion clinic and, and dispersed them, sent them out by FedEx and UPS to the places where they were sold. Um, his name was Dean Alberti. But we had two other operatives too that we've never named publicly and we won't be naming them publicly. Uh, who were helping us. And um, so we did that project uh, as an undercover project. We also, I'm sure you're familiar with the work that we did on identifying uh, abortion clinics that harbor men who rape children. Um, we were the ones who did that. 
What were the what were the details of that? Because so I know <clears throat> I know a lot of our our listeners to this podcast um, will be newer to the pro life movement, so they'll know about the 2015 Center for Medical Progress investigation. They'll probably know about Lila Rose's earlier investigations about Planned Parenthood, but most of them will not be familiar with your investigation into the sex offenders working at abortion clinics. So could you kind of uh, explain? The sex offenders working at abortion clinics is a separate project from the child predator project In the child predator project. What we wanted to ascertain was whether these abortion clinics were, were adhering to their state's mandatory reporting laws. Um, and so we, we hired a, an actress who was actually 26 years old, but she has the voice of a 12 year old. If you've, have you listened to the tapes? Some of them, yes. Some of them, yes. You can tell. I mean, she sounds like she's 10 or 12 years old. We had her portray, portray um, a 13-year-old girl pregnant by an adult man, 22 years old, um, and she's pregnant, and they're seeking an abortion in order to conceal this from, from the authorities and from her parents. Now, that's a mandatory reporting situation in all 50 states. We put her on the phone, we called, we had her call with our attorney on a line with her. Uh, she called every Planned Parenthood facility in America and every freestanding abortion clinic that was not a Planned Parenthood facility in America. Uh, 800, we made 800 and I think 46 calls, we recorded them. We actually made contact with 813 people. Sometimes you couldn't get a hold of somebody because two clinics would share a common line. So you only got one call out of that situation. We actually made contact and recorded 813 conversations, which is perfectly legal to do because we're in Texas, which is what's called a one party state. If one party knows that things being recorded, it's legal. So all of those calls, you can go to our childpredator.com website and listen to what we found was, despite the fact that a lot of these counselors at these abortion clinics would say, look, tell her, look, darling, we're mandatory reporters and we're supposed to report this to the police. But when you come in here, don't use your real name or give us a fake phone number or give us a fake address. And don't let your, don't tell us that your boyfriend's 22. Tell us that he's 13 or, 12, or 14 like you. Um, they are counseling this girl on how to not only keep them from reporting, but they're telling her things like, um, and by the way, at school, don't be letting your teachers know about this relationship because they'll report you. So they're telling her they've got a, a victim of statutory rape, or they think it's a victim of statutory rape sitting in front of them. And they're telling her information that's designed specifically to protect the person that's raping her. You can't make an argument that it's protecting her by any stretch of the imagination. So if they're giving this information to them, and by the way, 91% uh, agreed not to report with very many wow. of them. Wow. 91%. Uh, only 9% agreed to do what they're mandated by law to do. Um, 81, 91% agreed not to um, and to help her out. And um, like I said, even to the point of giving her advice on how to keep other people from reporting. Now, the other project that you mentioned about sexual predators inside the abortion industry, 
um, we were doing a lot of litigation support for women that are killed, injured, or sexually assaulted while having an abortion. And we started seeing that the number of women being sexually assaulted in abortion clinics is a major problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started researching that. And uh, you can go to our uh, website and see the information on that too. We found hundreds of cases of women being raped inside abortion clinics. And people say, well, why would that happen? The answer is very simple. An abortionist knows that the vast majority of the women that he's dealing with can't tell him there's somebody in their lives that they can't talk to, that they can't tell that they had an abortion or that they got pregnant or that they were sexually active. So if he's got a little 15 year old girl in there and he thinks I want to do something with this girl and he knows that she can't tell her pregnant, her parents that she's pregnant or that she's having an abortion or even that she's sexually active, then she's a sitting duck. And we found, uh, we documented uh, hundreds of cases of this and we put them on our, on our website. You can go to lifetimehammocks.com or prolifeamerica.com and look under the reports and projects and you can read the case histories. And these are um, all taken from police reports or medical examiner reports. Um, and it, it, you can go read it. Women are being raped as we speak inside abortion clinics. And the abortion industry knows it. Um, we um, also did a study on the number of women in this country who are raped, beaten, are killed when they refuse to have abortions. Um, it's a major problem and the abortion industry is very aware of it. At some of their conventions, they talk about this problem that so many of their clients they know or their customers they know are not there of their own decision, of their own choice. They're there because somebody else is threatening them. And we, again, if you go to our websites, you can read the case histories that we found. And these are all from police reports and from medical examiner reports, uh, sheriff's departments, uh, autopsy reports. These are all women who were murdered when they refused to have abortions. And the, the thing to me that's telling about this situation is we have made sure with every one of these things we, we've done, whether it's women being raped in abortion clinics or murdered for refusing to have abortions or beaten and put into a nursing home for refusing to have abortions, We've made sure the abortion industry is aware of this. And we've made sure that all these pro-abortion groups out there and pro-abortion politicians are aware of this. We send them copies of the reports. We can't get one of them to do anything about it. And I think it's very interesting that you, know, you and I both know that if an abortionist were to be shot today, this would be headline news for a month. Yeah, if not longer, yeah, if yeah. not longer. And yeah. they talk about it for years. Every time the abortion industry, I mean, every time the abortion issue would come up in public, the media and the abortion lobby would talk about that incident, right? Now, in the whole history of the pro-life movement, there's been, in, in almost 50 years, there's been eight people killed at abortion clinics because they work at an abortion clinic. There's been hundreds of women killed. Nobody's talking about that. So the dead abortionist counts, which are overwhelmingly male, by the way, they count, but the dead women don't count. 
And I challenge anybody to tell me, give me an explanation for that. Why is it that dead abortionists count, but dead women? So when you released these reports, what was the public response from the abortion industry, especially the specific clinics that you exposed? They don't talk about it. Their theory is, and, and they're correct, because the American media is so sold out to the abortion industry, the abortion industry's reaction to this stuff is they're not going to get publicity, meaning, meaning the pro-lifers are not going to get publicity over this, so we'll just wait them out. They'll raise a big ruckus for a few days, and when they don't get any publicity for it from the media, it'll go away. But again, you and I both know that if an abortionist was killed today, this would be front page news. If a pro-lifer were caught raping women at a CPC, let's just say there was a, a male that ran a CPC and it was discovered that he was having sex with the women that come in there and especially with the underage girls that come in there, this would be front page news. But we've proven that this is a major problem in the abortion industry and the media will not cover it. So when you, for example, released that massive expose illustrating the number of clinics, 91%, that would not report a sexual assault and also illustrating many examples of, of coaching from the abortion clinic staff to young girls, was there any response to this at all from, from the media? Oh, we got a ton of coverage. Um, they, were, they were almost forced to. And most of the coverage that was, that was created was looking at us to see if we had done something that they might could come after Life Dynamics for. Primarily, right. um, did we violate federal wiretapping laws? Well, federal laws is a one-party situation. But the question that they wanted to know was, did we make these calls in states that were two-party states? And we did. And if those calls had been made within that state, we'd have been violating that state's wiretapping laws. But there's case law out there that shows that the law that, apply, that applies is the law that's in place where the call originated, which is Texas, which is a one-party state. But I can't tell you the number of, of the amount of publicity that this thing generated where the main theme of the coverage was looking at us and to try wrong. to show that we yeah. had done something wrong. Which was exactly the same thing with David Delayden when he, he released released his videos. The entire discussion was about the ethics of how he obtained the footage, not what the footage actually showed the American public. Somebody needs to say, you know, I, and I used to say this when when we were under the gun on this. I'd say, I, I tell you what, if you think that we did something illegal, then get your state's attorney or your attorney general or your district attorney in the county where you live or whatever to file charges against us. We'll fight it out in court. But in the meantime. The question is, no matter how the information was generated, is it accurate? Is it good information? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that should be the salient point, especially when you're talking about the rape of underage girls and the trafficking of underage girls. This is a major problem in America. And people don't, and I, and I suspect even in Canada, this is a similar issue. In America right now, among girls 15 and younger, who get pregnant, 15 and younger, 60 to 80%, most estimates are 60 to 
were impregnated by an adult, not by another child. Statutory rape is rampant in America, and I suspect it's rampant in, in Canada as well. Um, nobody seems to care about that. But when they wind up at the abortion clinic, and by the way, this is a, this is a serial situation. It's, a, it's a, a situation where if you don't get these guys, I, let me give you a good example of this. I'll just give you one specific. And this is one that we did a lot of research on. There's a guy named George Joseph England, E-N-G-L-U-N-D. Uh, he worked for a company where he was stationed in, uh, it's either Taiwan or Thailand, I never can remember which, but anyway, he was stationed there. While he was there, he purchased a three-year-old girl, purchased a three-year-old girl, and immediately started sexually abusing her. He eventually got transferred, I think, to Vietnam. The company had, had facilities in various uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries. He gets transferred to, to Vietnam. He takes the girl with him, and he's, he has her for like five years. Then he gets transferred back to the United States, to California. Somehow or another, and we were never quite able to find out how he was able to do it, he got her into California. She's living with him in California, and he's continuing to sexually abuse her. Not only that, he sexually, he had a, she had a little sleepover or something. He sexually abused two of her friends, and he got indicted by the state of California. So he takes off with the girl. He still got her. He takes off, and he winds up in Florida, where he continued to sexually abuse her until she was 18 years old. And at 18 years old, she told a friend of hers what was going on. And this friend she told happened to be an FBI, her father happened to be an FBI agent. So this whole thing came crashing down. And he went to trial and he was given, I think, 37 years or 38 years in prison. Plus, the state of California is waiting on him for these out in California. So he's never getting out of jail. But what's interesting about this is that during the trial, it was revealed that she became pregnant for the first time at like 11 years old. Between then and the time that she was 18 and, and this thing unraveled, she had either eight or nine abortions. They could document eight. They think there was nine, but she, they could document eight. She was taken to abortion clinics in the state of Florida. They knew she was underage. No one ever made a report on this. And that's what allowed the, the abuse to continue. And by the way, this is a typical scenario that we see. This is not an unusual situation. I just happen to remember his name because his last name is kind of interesting. George Joseph England was mm -hmm. his name. But he's in this Florida State Penitentiary right now. And he'll probably never get out from there, given his age. But uh, he was in his 60s. Uh, so he's, he's never going to get out in Florida. But if he were, uh, California is waiting for him right, right behind them. Why do so few people know about this? Because I, there, a lot of people will talk about the abortion industry. Uh, and, and to be really blunt, they'll talk about how most of the people in the abortion industry are just sort of mildly misguided. Um, you know, more like they're sort of future friends rather than present, you know, people who are engaged in the, in the systematic and, and daily destruction of human life. And I, I, I don't buy that nearly as much. I've, look, I've been through the dumpsters behind abortion clinics. 
Um, I've <laughs> read the autopsy reports from our mutual friend, uh, Troy Newman. Uh, I know that they see this every day that you can't uh, like most people don't know what abortion looks like. The abortion is due. They're piecing these babies back together on trays after dismembering them like gruesome jigsaw puzzles. Why is it that most people won't admit that the, the abortion industry is exactly as you describe it and as Troy describes it? Uh, and there's a, there's a handful. The people who do undercover work don't talk about abortion, the abortion industry. In, in these sort of glowing and sympathetic terms? I think that a, a, a significant number of our people are too nice to be as cynical as me and Troy, for example, <laughs> or you for that, for that matter. Um, and they're naive. They really think that the people in the abortion lobby are their pro-choice friends or their pro-choice people that they meet wherever they hang out are good, decent people. They just disagree with us on this issue. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we started a whole website with the idea in mind that we would expose to the, to the pro-abort, since the media won't do it. I'm sorry, we would expose to our fellow pro-lifers what kind of scumbags these people are. And that website is called peopleofchoice.com. Have you ever been to that site? Not that one, no. Okay, well, you need to go to that because if you're dealing with these pro-lifers that are naive enough to buy into all of this and they think that one day we're going to end this and the, we and the pro-aborts are all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and walk off into the sunset, they're, they're dreaming. That's not the kind of battle this is. They need to understand the nature of this battle. You can't win a battle unless you understand the nature of it. Mm -hmm. And that's why we did peopleofchoice.com and you really need to go look at that website and encourage all your people to go look at it. It'll give them a different view. It'll probably take you an hour to go through the entire website. It'll be the best hour you ever spent. If you want to know what the nature of this battle is. Um, and so I would really encourage people to do that. But the problem we've got is um, the average American doesn't know about this because the media is not going to tell them about it. They're going to cover it up. Um, and the average pro-lifer doesn't know about it because, to be honest with you, I think most of them really don't want to know about it. Um, they, right. They're naive, and um, I don't know. You know, I don't want to be too critical here, but um, they simply don't understand what the fundamental nature of this of – this Because I watched uh, – a lot of the David Daleiden footage has still been suppressed and is under wraps and he doesn't have the legal ability to release it. But they, there was I, some, some, some friendly in, 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 in Congress released a whole bunch of raw footage. I think there was eight to 14 hours of it. And I watched every, every bit of it, all of the, all the undercover footage of, of the various abortionist panels at these conferences and things like that. And to listen to them make jokes about eyeballs falling into their laps after they've removed the, you know, the, the calvarium or the head um, talking about how they, 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 they're so, they got fetuses coming out of their ears because they don't have enough freezers to put the dead babies and joking about having bonfires on the back of fields where they're burning piles of babies and things like that. Like, and this is just a couple of years ago, right? This isn't, you know, this isn't like the, these isn't the back alley days. This is, these are the biggest abortion businesses in the United States. And this is what they're saying when they think nobody's listening. And it's so important that people understand who it is that we're actually dealing with that 
Somebody who thinks it's funny when an eyeball falls out of a baby's head and lands on their lap is not somebody who, as you put it, is going to, you know, join hands and sing Kumbaya. How do we get across to people that what's actually taking place here is fundamentally a battle between darkness and light? I think we just have to keep hammering away at it. I mean, I, I don't have a magic solution to that. Um, the magic solution would be if we had an honest media in this country, but we don't. I don't know much about the Canadian media. Right. I, suspect, I suspect it's not any much different than what we have here. Um, and I think, by the way, this is one of the things that causes the, the American, what I call the godless left, to hate Donald Trump so much. Because one of the things that Donald Trump has done is he's shined a light on the American media and shown them for what they are. I think the American people's view of the media is fundamentally different than it was four years ago. That there was probably a lot of people in America that still thought, well, at least we have a, an unbiased press. We don't. Um, you know, I had a, a young lady working for me years ago who had a, had a degree in Russian studies, and she had spent some time in the Soviet Union. And we were looking some one day, and this was during the child predator thing, when we couldn't get any traction in the mainstream media over the fact that we had identified one of the sources of the trafficking of young girls and the statutory rape of young girls. The reason that it was happening, uh, we had identified and we couldn't get anybody to look at it. And she made the point that when she was in the Soviet Union, she said, I've come, I've come to believe that Pravda, which was the Russian newspaper, the Soviet newspaper, was less dangerous than the American press. Because when you read Pravda, you knew it was propaganda yeah. and you knew to be on your toes and to, and to question everything. But you pick up the New York Times, and you know, oh, well, this is the New York Times. Let me tell you something. The New York Times is no more honest than Pravda was. Um, there, you know, I saw somebody the other day talking about um, some story that was covered in the media. And the other side said something like, well, where was that? In the National Enquirer? And somebody says, no, I think it was in the New York Times. What they need to understand is there's no difference between the National Enquirer and the New York Times. Just because the New York Times doesn't do stories about uh, Bigfoot marrying Madonna and having a, you know, uh, alien baby or something, just because they don't do stories like that doesn't mean that they're any more honest than the National Enquirer, who does do those sort of stories. Uh, they're not any more honest. And I think this is one reason the, that uh, Trump is so hated by the left is because he has shined, shined a light on the media like no one else ever has. Final question. Uh, what do you think the next five to 10 years look like for the pro-life movement? I think it depends on what we do. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to have a national election here in, in a few days, next Tuesday, a week from today. Um, what we, we need to have, be prepared for whichever way it goes. If Trump wins, the big danger that we face, and we've faced this before and not responded well to it, the big danger we face is that the entire pro-life movement takes a deep breath and sits back and says, oh, now we can take a, we can, we can all relax. Donald Trump's going to take care of things. We've done that with every pro-life or so-called pro-life president that's ever come along. Um, that is a major mistake, major mistake. Um, if Trump loses, I think it's going to be so despondent, so devastating to our people that we think, well, all hope is lost and we're going to give up. Uh, we can't do that either. 
So we've got to be prepared for whatever happens in this election and how we're going to respond to it. And remember that, uh, you know, when you get old like me, old and worn out and half dead, one of the things that you've learned in your life is that things are seldom as bad as they seem and things are seldom as good as they seem. Um, and it's like in football, you know, the, when, when a football team is going well, the, the quarterback is the greatest guy on the face of the planet. When the football team's going badly, it's all his fault. And neither one of those is true. And so we've got to be prepared for how this thing goes. I think if we respond well after this election, that we can continue to devastate the abortion industry and it'll collapse. Look what they're having to do right now. It's already collapsing. They're having now to pass state laws that allow non-physicians to do abortions because they can't get people to work in these places. I mean, 20% of all the abortions that happen in the United States happen in California. One state has 20% of all the abortions in the country. And they've recently passed a law that allows non-doctors to do abortions. And they're advancing that. And they're, they're saying this is a great leap forward for the pro-choice community. Well, I thought that the idea here was that you want to make these things safe and that they should be done by doctors and hospitals in clean environments. That was always the argument 25 years ago. Where are we now? Mm -hmm. We're going to let just anybody uh, do these abortions, midwives, uh, doctor, uh, physician assistants, those kind of people, not even under the care of a doctor, not even under the oversight of a doctor. So you can literally just, if you have any kind of medical training whatsoever, and I think we're headed to the point where you don't even have to have medical training. You just have to pass some kind of test. You can set up, set up your shingle, hang out your shingle as an abortionist. It's happening in California right now and happening in other places. Hmm. Uh, so I think if we keep up the pressure, this industry is going to collapse. It already is. Like I said, when, when, if you're an industry that's lost 75% of your facilities since 1992, and the number of people that are buying your product continues to plummet year after year, then it's only a matter of time before the whole thing collapses in. And I think to some degree, the pro-life movement needs to recognize that one of the things that we've been doing for the last almost 50 years we're trying to stop abortion by making it illegal. My view is, and this is what I wrote in Firestorm in 86, we got to stop it before we can make it illegal. And that's what we're doing. We're stopping. Once the, remember something, high abortion rates create political inertia to keep abortion legal. Mm -hmm. Low abortion rates don't create that inertia. Yeah. So the lower we get the abortion rate done because of all these other things that we're doing, call them guerrilla strategies or whatever you want to call them. But, but the lower we get the abortion rate because of those things, then the more effective our political strategy will be. You and I both know that this is about money. Every time you investigate anything in the abortion lobby, what you find out is you get it down to its core. It, it's about money. Well, when the money dries up because the abortion rate is so low, they won't care whether it's legal or not. That's a good place to end, Mark. Thanks so much for, for coming on. I really appreciated this conversation. Would love to have you on again. Just call me anytime. I'd be happy to, John. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Mark Crutcher of Life Dynamics. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab to check out past shows and to sign up to get new shows delivered directly to you. Please do subscribe if you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.